You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation. This season, we are igniting the imagination of leaders through conversations with the four recipients of the 2022 Tom Locke Innovative Leader Award. These spiritual entrepreneurs are pushing the margins of what it means to practice faith and build community in today's world with their bold vision for the world God imagines. For more information, visit wesleyaninvestive.org and click Locke Award. Hi, friends. I'm Lisa Greenwood here with my co-host for this season, Matt Russell. Hi, Matt. Hi, Lisa. So if this is your first time listening, this season we are having conversation with our four Lock Innovative Leader Award winners for 2022. The Lock Innovative Leader Award is named after Wesleyan Investive and TMF President Tom Locke, who holds a strong belief that investment in bold, enterprising leaders with inventive approaches to ministry not only advances the church, but creates communities of genuine human flourishing. And by doing so, changes the world. So the aim of the Locke Award is to shine a bright light on spiritual entrepreneurs and their ministry, to network and support these courageous leaders who are making a positive impact and who are giving shape to the new emerging church landscape. The award includes a cash prize as well as an invitation to participate in a cohort with other award recipients. So let's turn our attention to our interview with Kit Evans Ford. And Matt, will you tell us a little bit about her? Yeah, I mean this this interview was just really amazing and so much fun. And getting to know Kit is uh, just a blessing. And I know that um, our listeners are going to find uh, the same thing. And here's a bit of her bio. Um, Dr. Kit Evans Ford is a national trainer. She's a spiritual director. She's a professor. She's passionate about uh, nonviolence, God, and serving others. She's been a trainer and activist for 14 years, working relentlessly in the areas of nonviolence education and assisting people in healing from violence and abuse. She's also an adjunct professor in the Department of Theology at St. Ambrose University. She's the author of uh, a book called 101 Testimonies of Hope, Life Stories to Encourage Your Faith in God, and a children's book on Bishop Richard Allen, A Nonviolent Journey. She's also certified in spiritual direction and is the founder of Argro's House of Healing and Hope in Davenport, Iowa. Argro's House is a safe place where free services are offered daily for women, healing from violence and abuse in the greater Quad Cities area. Argro's House is also a successful social uh, enterprise where uh, women healing from violence and abuse create beautiful bath products and uh, provide a living wage for themselves in a safe space that celebrates who they are. It's a really amazing conversation with Kit. I just have loved it. What stood out to you, Lisa, in this conversation? So first, I want to say that uh, to our listeners that there are themes of of violence and sexual mm-hmm. abuse in this interview that that Kit handles with transparency and vulnerability and and such grace. Yeah. But if those are triggering topics for you, please take care of yourself and skip this episode. We'll put a few resources in the show notes for help related to trauma. So when I think about this interview with Kit and our time together, I am struck by how all throughout her story, there's this sense of, we don't do this alone. Yeah. We don't do this alone. I, I think whatever we're facing in life, that's a really mm-hmm. important word to all of us. Yeah. Yeah. We live in a, a culture right now, I think, that is really 
um, dividing itself up into smaller fragments of isolation. And then here comes Kit. (laughs) And uh, she's creating, she really is creating communities of belonging that act as this like deep counter narrative to all of that other junk. Yes. And it's just, you know, I, I want to, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, especially in the face of trauma, which can, yeah. can isolate us. We can just right. get, go deeper into ourselves and into um, all that comes with it. And, and yeah. she didn't, and she doesn't, she uses those, those words running into the things that make you cringe <laughs> right. Just straight we, toward them, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Which is a call towards Lent or, you know, towards the desert of of our own kind of experiences um spiritually, right? And so yeah. there's that that deep sense in which the places that often wound us the most can be places of also deep healing. Yeah. Right. I, I keep thinking there's there's a couple of things that came to me. One was the Gungur song that uh, where the phrase is you make beautiful things out of dust. Yeah. Right. Often when our lives are are ground down to dust, mm-hmm. um, here comes the Holy Spirit saying, nevertheless, yeah. nevertheless, I will make beautiful things. And yes. so um, I found that. Uh, an operation in her story over and over again. This, mm-hmm. this neverthelessness <laughs> about yeah. the very spirit of God. That is a great word for Kit and for this interview and for the word of hope. Nevertheless, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Let's listen yeah. to our conversation with Kit. Hi, Kit. It's great to see you. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Matt. Hi. Thank you for being with us today. And we're going to jump right in and and would love to hear a bit of your story, like some of the significant things that led you to this place in your life. Uh, My story. So I'm from a small town in North Carolina called Medbin. Uh, When Mm -hmm. I was growing up, we had like one stoplight and you know, uh, I think we had a Hardee's back then and then our schools, but uh, now we have an outlet mall and so many other things because we're not too far from uh, Raleigh, Durham, and also Greensboro. And so, you know, there's been a lot of growth in, in many ways from a small town, but, you know, come from a Bible Belt area, grew up in the African Methodist Episcopal Church where um, the women in my family served the best way that they could as missionaries in the church. You know, later in life, my grandmother, I can remember her, my grandma Argro, who's very, though she passed away years ago, was very instrumental to my religious formation. But because of certain limits as far as, um, you know, women and ministry, she wasn't able to get ordained until she was 70 years old. And at the time, she was in a wheelchair. Um, She had had several heart attacks and strokes and so had both legs amputated. But I remember this image of my grandmother, 70 years old, getting in the pulpit in her wheelchair and preaching her initial sermon at 70 years old and doing it with boldness and love and compassion. Come on. I never (laughs) forgot that image of her that really just affirms how important ministry is, how important it is to fight to do the work of God, regardless of what the world or what maybe even sometimes our denomination may do to limit that. You know, for her, she, she you know, served in the community, served in the church, and it was just a really powerful thing. You know, unfortunately, you know, there's oftentimes 
things that you see in people's life in the public, but then behind closed doors, they're different realities. And so, you know, my grandmother served in the community. My mother did as well. But behind the scenes, both of them were survivors of domestic violence. And so, you know, growing up, I saw both dynamics, the women and strength within the church. But then I saw the vulnerable reality and the traumatic reality of what happens when women, though having extremely compassionate hearts, what happens when women are traumatized, specifically within my family, specifically around domestic violence. And so, you know, that became kind of a huge part of my reality at a young age. I saw my siblings embrace similar behavior, had older siblings. And so at a young age, I said, okay, there has to be another way, right? Mm. So for me, um, education became a, a huge outlet for me. And so I kind of latched on to school and books, you know, I would sleep with my books and other things. And I started to volunteer with an organization when I was 14 called Students Against Violence Everywhere. I think I was actually 13 um, and became their spokesperson. So we did like peer mediation work. We traveled around the state of North Carolina talking about violence prevention, conflict resolution. And so that type of work became very important to me. I always say, I know God saved my life, but this organization saved in a way, saved my life as a young person um, because it taught me another way of being connected to not just nonviolence, peace and justice in the church, right? But nonviolence, peace, justice, compassion, and the world as well. I think both have to meet mm. in order to share and embrace the love of Christ, mind, body, and spirit in our in our whole life, in our everyday life. And so, you know, I, I moved forward, went to college. And what do what does um, you know, every young person that wants to help heal the world do? <laughs> I did Teach for America and then I joined the Peace Corps. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's what I did. Awesome. I, I went to the Peace Corps and you know, was doing work with uh, women around politics, gender and politics. I was in the Caribbean. And throughout that, I had I, I was blessed before the Peace Corps to start doing international development work in different contexts throughout Africa, um, did some work in Japan and Europe, South Africa. And so, you know, this was kind of like my jam. I said, oh, I want to, after the Peace Corps, I want to travel around the world helping women and healing from violence and abuse. And I also want to be able to connect with them spiritually. You know, at the time I hadn't accepted my call to ministry. I didn't really know what that meant for me. But what I did know was that I love Jesus Christ. Mm. What I did know was that I saw how the love of God, even in the midst of train and pain and trauma, helped the women in my family to still have hope. You know, yeah. it helped me to see how the love of Christ literally helped people stand in the midst of pain and suffering and, you know, having their backs against the wall. And so, you know, so during my Peace Corps time, I started, you know, unconsciously serving in local churches, you know, teaching Bible study to, to children, under, working to understand how the Bible could assist women in healing from violence, working to understand how the Bible could assist people living with HIV and AIDS, you know, all of these different things and, and how the Bible could be used as this tool of, of hope and peace and love and justice. 
And so it was my my time in the Peace Corps where I myself, unfortunately, became a survivor of an extremely violent sexual assault. And much of what I had been working with women and children, girls throughout my journey, I had to, for the first time in my life, apply those things to myself, you know. And so someone had been stalking me. I didn't really, I mean, I was so young and like, you know, a little naive, but very compassionate. You know, I would walk down the street in my small village at night at 12 a.m., just la, la, la. (laughs) You know, I would, you know, but I was young and I loved and I gave love and I received love. And, you know, I I didn't think that something like that could happen or would happen to me because I was a nice person. I was there. I had committed my life, you know, to helping others at at a very young age and and I'm grateful to God for, for the path and for, for choosing me to help and serve in that way, you know, even now, even regardless of, of the trauma or the pain that may happen on that journey, even in my personal life. I can say that now. Thanks be to God. Um, thank you, God. Thank you, God. And so um, for me, when that happened to me, someone had uh, this this guy um, who was a stranger, but I had seen him a couple times when I was kind of in vulnerable moments that I never even really realized were vulnerable moments. You know, when I was doing my morning jog um, in this very remote area through fields going up a, you know, a small hill when I was getting off the bus at, you know, 12 a.m. coming from a, wow. a little salsa class, like with tourists, you know, things like that. That night he broke into my apartment, had a butcher knife, beat me cut me up, attempted to rape me, rob me. Thanks be to God, my neighbors um, heard my screams and I was able to uh, break a knife in half that was literally cutting me up and throw the knife so that he wouldn't use that butcher knife on me further. And I was able to get away. My neighbors heard me and was able to pull me out of that situation. And so I, I, I thank God that I'm here. I thank God that I'm able to, in my context, 2 Timothy 2.12, like we talk about, if you suffer with me, you will reign with me. Um, In my context, we talk about what the devil meant for evil, God meant for good. You know, over my theological um, studies journey, I've had to wrestle with that text and have written many papers about this, you know, but on the other side of it, I, I do know that because of what happened to me, I have a different sense of empathy and compassion Mm -hmm. and love for women and children and who have experienced similar realities. So I was able to get away from that situation, but, you know, learned the reality of post-traumatic stress disorder, um, learned the reality of what happens when someone is fighting in a criminal trial, you know, I was blessed with the best possible resources because I was working for the government. So, you know, I wasn't able to work because my hands, I wasn't able to use my hands for a while. I wasn't able to, you know, do certain work that I had been doing before. So the government assisted me financially for a time. They made sure I had the best counselors. Um, I had to go back to the island. I was medically evacuated, but I had to go back to the island several times to identify the guy who had assaulted me. He was a serial rapist. So I had an FBI victim advocate with me every single minute I was there who carried a gun 
And so she was there with me every step of the way, even though, you know, PTSD is still a very traumatic reality. I had a bodyguard. And so all of these different things, I was, even though I had to go through these things, like God provided in a way, mind, body, and spirit to support me through that journey. And Mm -hmm. most people don't have that privilege to have that type of support. And so part of my commitment to Christ in the midst of my own suffering and trauma was accepting my call to ministry. I got into the Pacific School of Religion, got a presidential scholarship to move forward with my seminary education. And during my seminary education was when I was going through this trial, went back and forth to the Caribbean. But he received 46 years in prison and I've been able to to move forward. And so Argos House, which is the ministry that we're highlighting today, the five-year plan for Argos House was actually written when I was going through this this reality. And also it was my senior project, my senior, my final senior seminar paper in seminary. I wrote about this uh, women's center for healing and hope. There would be free holistic services for women survivors of violence. The missing piece was the social enterprise. But during my time in seminary, I had visited Thistle Farms based in Nashville, Tennessee, mm-hmm. Reverend Becca, Becca Stevens, who for the first time I saw that a woman could be a chaplain, a priest. We could have a healing home and we could start a business that employed women survivors. Who knew? (laughs) And so, you know, thanks be to God. Now I'm part of Thistle Farms Global Council for Global Shared Trade. And Becca is my mentor now years later. You know, this has kind of, you know, that seed was planted 10 years ago. Thanks be to God, 10 years later, Argos House is what it is. And, you know, those those places that had planted seeds are now my mentors that help to feed the ministry here at Argos House so that I can, you know, help lead and, and support women survivors of violence here in the Quad Cities region. And so, yeah, so social innovation, social enterprise, you know, as a as a chaplain and someone moving forward in ministry, you know, you don't Back then, now things are changing. Thanks be to God. And I'm grateful for this. <laughs> I'm grateful for the Wesleyan Innovative. And I'm grateful for the United Methodist Church because, you know, we're having these conversations about how ministry and social innovation can be combined. You yeah. know, because literally it allows us to serve marginalized populations, sometimes even serve our own congregation that may need assistance as well, right? Because oftentimes, you know, our community may need resources, our community, we may need to feed back into our own community, which is okay as well, right? That's part of social innovation, social enterprise as well. And so I, you know, seeds were planted along my journey, um, but ultimately what I do and why I do what I do is deeply rooted and connected to the women in my family, all the Argros in my family, because yeah. Argro was my grandmother, Argro was my aunt, Argro is me, Argro is my daughter, right? Mm. And so, no, literally, that's our name. <laughs> and so, you know, um, but also from place of deep personal pain for me that I know that God has used to do good in the world, right? This This work is not just what I do, I know that I was put on this planet for such a time as this to do this work. And I am grateful to be able to share with others, be able to encourage and 
Um, I know within our social enterprise, so we're a bath and body product company. Um, so we provide free holistic services, but we also have beautiful bath and body products that are handmade by women survivors of violence. Always say that hands that were once beaten black and blue are used to create something beautiful mm-hmm. and a safe place that celebrates who they are. Huh. In our in our kitchen, you would think that our ladies are cutting diamonds because we're like, oh, what a beautiful bath bomb! That bath bomb is gorgeous, right? But for women, you know, I mean, it's true. It's funny. It's really funny, you know. But for a lady who has had a journey connected to domestic violence and sex trafficking and trauma, to be affirmed, to be loved, to be able to put money in her pocket and told that she has worth and that she's beautiful, fearfully, wonderfully made, precious in God's sight, that she's capable. You know, it does something to help transform so many things, mind, body, and spirit for the women that we serve Mm -hmm. here. Um, so yeah, so that's that's much of my journey. That's Argos House, and um, oh, yeah. What are, what are you all thinking? <laughs> Thanks for listening. By the way, I want to take a moment and just breathe. Me <laughs> too. Yeah, it can be kind of heavy, you know. But uh, you know what? I find most people in ministry that are deeply committed to something is oftentimes connected to a personal experience or oftentimes connected to someone that they have some type of interaction or some relationship they that they've had with someone that they deeply care about. And it and it's something that has stayed on their heart that they have to do something to be a part of that change and solidarity with those marginalized populations. So yeah, let's take a I can I can lead the deep breath. All right. So all right, if if you all and everyone listening, if you all would uh, are willing and able, just take a seat and get your feet planted if you're willing and able. Mm-hmm. And we'll take a deep breath in. And now another one in. And now. We'll do one more together in and now. And whenever you're ready, we'll come back together to continue our conversation. Um, thank you uh, for your story, for for both just your honesty and and um, thank you for staying alive. Yeah. Uh, and I thank God for the resources that were around you, um, um, that that were just given, which, as we know, in this work isn't always the case, and and that just you know that's thank you so. I'm I'm struck with a lot of things, and so I'll I'll try to. 
First of all, I'm struck with the fact that when you're, you're 13, you become a spokesperson for uh, a national nonviolent organization, 13. So at 13, you're taking something that is very personal. And as a 13 year old, as we know, uh, our identity development is so crucial at that time. And it's so sometimes can collapse in on oneself and say, what do I do to survive? You turn that pain of your own family, even as an adolescent, into something that you were thinking about on a, like, on a much larger scale than just your family. How does this stop for everyone? Yeah. Well, you know, I think I think in schools now um, and now Students Against Violence Everywhere works with they've combined with Sandy Hook Promise, which is actually an organization from that the parents of the children at Sandy Mm -hmm. Hook started to really, you know, we have Safe Schools Week. We have um, they do a lot of advocacy around gun violence and Mm -hmm. also getting policies passed to stop you know, um, gun, certain gun laws and, and other things or to affirm and, and put into legislation certain gun laws. Um, and so the, the work continues, you know. I think that there, I think for young people, I think that oftentimes, I mean, when we're youth, it's so much of who we are is being established, right? Mm. Um, so much of who we are is is being, our, our whole life is, I mean, it's such a, a fragile yet be loving and affirming time for us as we move forward in our lives, mm-hmm. right? And so I think and sometimes when people have things that are happening in our home that may not be so positive, it is school or that teacher or that social worker or that pastor or that yeah. youth minister right. or that really nice lady in church, right? <laughs> that gives a child who may not be getting a certain type of compassion and love at home or Mm. maybe seeing things that may be traumatic, Mm. right? And when given the opportunity, that child latches to that and, you know, sees that, okay, this is my way out. This is my way to get some type of peace for myself. I think for young people today, there's so many different things pulling at them. Now, when I was young, we we may have had beepers, and I think we had those little flip phones that are like green. I'm aging myself, but I graduated from high school in 2000, so that was a long time ago, 20, 22 years ago. But yeah, I think that now there's so many things pulling young people with social media, with COVID-19, so many different realities. But I know that our churches are a safe space and can be prayerfully a safe space for our young people. Even how we do ministry online now for young people helps with with developing that safe safe space and compassion know, service groups and other things. So say for me was a service group. It was a, a group that allowed me certain skills and tools to help people work through their conflicts. So though I wasn't able to do certain things at home, you know, I was learning how to do them with other young people, mm-hmm. which now, you know, I wasn't able to do that with my with my adult grandmother at the time, right? But now as an adult woman, I can take some of those same skills and work with other adult women. Mm. So it's kind of been a kind of gradual journey for me. Many of those skills that I learned when I was a teenager, I'm still putting them into practice today. Mm. 
you know, with yeah. the women and children that I serve, focused on violence prevention and, and peer mediation and even self-care and service. Mm. I think we can learn these things at a very, and it's important to learn these things at a very young age. Our children, our teens are so precious mm. and so important. And uh, it's important that we give and extend compassion and teach them certain mm. things about the love of Christ and justice. Yeah, absolutely. And that connection between trauma and call, it seems has been there in your life quite a bit mm-hmm. from early on watching your grandmother to kind of the response that you had with your family, even out of your own deeply traumatized experience. You, there was a connection between trauma and call for you uh, into something, a larger field of of healing. Can you talk about that just a bit? Yeah. You know, what's interesting with me, like, I think I just unconsciously believe that if something happens to me, it's not just because, oh, this is just happening to kid or Dr. Kid. Uh, You know, this is just something that happened to her. If something happens to me, I know now in my growing adult wisdom, <laughs> it's still growing, right? I'm, I'm not the most ultimate wise person, but I'm journeying in wisdom. Thanks be to God. But what I, but what I, what I realize is that when something happens to me, it's not just for me. It's because it's happen, happened or is happening to someone else. And God has given me the strength to be able to work through these things so that I can figure out, okay, what works for me? And then I can be a source to assist other people in their healing from this. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was talking to others and talking to Lisa. Both of my children have autism. They both are on the spectrum. My son is nonverbal. My daughter is very active. She's a brilliant child. My son is also a brilliant child. They're very young. So we're journeying together. And all of these different pieces I've had to figure out for them with applied behavior analysis, with occupational therapy, with speech therapy, therapy seven hours a day, you know, all these different things that I'm figuring out. But then I realized, okay, you know, when I'm sitting in these lines, I'm seeing other parents like go through of all different ethnicities, go through these realities, all different socioeconomic statuses. Right. We don't have to do this alone. We're in this together. Like what resources can we have? What resources can we share with others that may not know where to go? You know, I am very privileged. I have been able to get some of the best possible education, you know, in this country. Right. And I'm blessed. I'm blessed by that. You know, my great grandmother was a sharecropper. And so this is just a couple generations where as an African-American woman, I'm able to have you know, multiple degrees have been able to go. My husband went to Harvard. I went to Ivy League institution as well, right? What a privilege. So even programs like the Peace Corps, Teach for America, even the church, right? Taught me to use the gifts that I have been given to be able to serve other people, right? And to be able to work through certain things myself, but then to give back what it is that I've been given, right? And to work to do that with humility, with love, with compassion, and extend the love of Christ, right? And so, you know, I think that for me, when something happens to me, okay, all right, how do I get through this? What resources do I need? How do I fight through this? Move forward, right? Once I get to the other, and healing is a journey, right? It's not something that happens overnight, is something that sometimes we have good days, sometimes we have bad days, sometimes we have triggers, sometimes we have great days, right? So it's a journey. We take it one day at a time. And so with me knowing and understanding that, 
because I am privileged and have resources and connections to be able to help others. And because I've been a, I went through certain things. So I understand personally certain dynamics, right? I'm able to, to give back and help to organize systems to help other people who have had to go through similar experiences, be it trauma and healing, or even with, with autism, autism awareness and being able to, to help other parents. And so trauma and call, you know, like I said, in my, in my context, we say what the devil meant for evil, God meant for good. Right. Mm. And so part of that goodness is sharing the love of Christ. And we do that as the hands and feet of Christ. Right. And it's not always easy. Like it's hard work. Oh my goodness. <laughs> hard work. Right. But we do it and we're not alone. We're not alone. We do it together in community. Yeah. I'd love for you to say a little more about that piece, Kit, because I've heard you reference a number of times we're not in it alone and the, the resources around you and those who've mentored you and those that you collaborate with. And so I'd love for you to share a little bit about what that has looked like for you. Yeah. So in community, what that has looked like for me is, you know, I mean, I'm a trained community development worker. And so the community development, what they do is kind of like drop you off in a community. You have certain skill sets, um, but then you have to develop relationships um, to be able to connect others with resources, right? But without that relationship, you aren't able to connect others with those resources because the person may not know you, they may not know of you, they that that trust may not be established, right? So I think when you are doing things in community, it's about, you know, it's the difference between like charity and solidarity, yeah. right? Extending, yeah. you know, I think charity is important. The Bible talks about it. It's connected mm-hmm. to, you know, charity is connected to love and for us, like with social enterprises, donations, um, and other things that we need, right? That often the church is a part of as well, things that our communities need to be able to survive. But in solidarity, and I think that solidarity is connected to community and also relationship. Solidarity, you are journeying hand in hand with the people that you're serving, also with the people that you're allies with, and you're walking together one step at a time together. No one is ahead of anyone else, right? Like we are journeying hand in hand in community, trusting each other, working together, right? And and that process sometimes takes, it takes time, right? It takes time to build trust and relationships and to know who has what strengths, who has what weaknesses, but we're here with each other and we, and we um, feed off of each other. I think as part of what the kingdom of God looks like, we all have different gifts and we all use those gifts in different ways to help build up the kingdom of God. But when we come together, oh my goodness, we can do some really great work. Oh yeah. yeah, you know I'm I'm amazed. Um, in in the story, much like what Lisa, what you're saying is that there's this movement that you that you have within your own work and the way that you have kind of imagined kind of your own life out of these things and out of these places that often um, these traumatizing events can really kind of shut down our life. 
And the, the bridge way to healing often is in connection and an authentic, trustworthy connection that's embodied, right? Most of the trauma work now is saying that we have to get out of our heads and move into embodied relationships and embodied actions. And it seems that intuitively, um, you have done that and you have created spaces for people in multiple forms of their own kind of uh, places of um, often isolation to create these embodied experiences of healing. And as as Ram Das would say, that all we're doing is just walking each other home, you know, mm-hmm. that we're just ha- and, and you've, you're doing that for and with people. H- how did you learn that? How do you do that? How do you imagine that? I think a couple of things come to mind. Like for me, I pray through everything. <laughs> like I pray, I pray all the time. I pray, you know, and it's not, you know, some people think that, you know, you have to lay like prostrate on the floor and pray and, you know, be on your knees. And like, and I think that that's, that's um, important when we have those times to be able to have that time with God and it's, absolutely beautiful but for me i literally like i pray throughout the day before i talk to a client before i talk to a donor before i you know talk to a lawyer before i i mean i'm i'm, I'm praying the whole time because I, I i know that i i can't do this work without god and i know that none of the pieces of this puzzle connected to embodied experiences of healing for myself but also with the women that we serve most importantly you know, aren't possible without God. I also think that for me personally, and this is something I think that as as just people, as people within the church, as leaders within the church, self-care, like I'm just thinking about spiritual disciplines and self-care and practicing what we preach, right? I think that oftentimes it's hard for someone to preach something if they're not living it themselves, you know, or maybe it's easy. I'm not sure. <laughs> but if, if if you're not practicing what you preach, it, it will eventually come out and yeah. it will come out in frustration and it will come out in different ways that aren't aligned with what you're working to establish within your community ministry context. And so I think that, you know, when we talk about embodied experiences of healing, um, especially if we're working in the field that's deeply important for us, even within the church, we have to figure out what works for us in our own journey connected to our spiritual disciplines, our love for God, our self-care, be it, you know, yoga, be it Bible study, be it prayer, be it a spa day every now and then. You know, I think that spirituality and the love of God can show up in in so many of those places, but it embody experiences of healing. So, you know, I think, I think for me, it was important for me to understand theory and practice. And so I had certain practical experience from working with survivors of sex trafficking with the Polaris Project when I was very young, coming out of college Mm -hmm. in D.C. So I worked in client services, but then also after, during graduate studies, my graduate work, and even throughout seminary, I had, uh, there was a book called Trauma and Recovery by Judith Herman. She is a professor at Harvard and she um, has worked and studied, you know, many people connected to trauma and what helps with recovery, right? And this from, you know, the subtitle is From Domestic Violence to Political Terror. And so she talks about how, you know, there are different kind of 
stages connected to recovery. She talks about the importance of remembering and mourning what you have lost. So having a safe space, be it the church, be it a loved one, be it counseling, having a safe space to remember and mourn what you have lost, to lament, to share testimony, all these different things, because oftentimes the weight of what you have experienced, like it's heavy on the shoulders. And so um, you're not able to move forward because you're stuck with these rocks, these bricks on your shoulder. And so understanding that more and how that plays out in, in your ministry context or in our ministry context was really important for, for me. For that for us, that looks like um, one-on-one counseling. That looks like Bible studies here. That looks like um, support groups. We have domestic violence support groups. You know, another component that Judith Herman talks about was reconnecting with ordinary life. Mm. And for some, when you experience trauma, you forget what makes you who you are in your own uniqueness. You forget those things you love and that makes you happy and whole in life. And so, you know, again, for some that's laughing uncontrollably with their children or grandchildren, right? For some Mm -hmm. that's, you know, a hobby, for some that's having a certain career path. But when you experience trauma, it's hard to remember those things because you're just trying to survive, right? You know, and so here we work to connect you know, the ladies with those things that they enjoy and, and help them to, you know, find the job that they like or, or gain the confidence to, to be able to step back into who they are in their own uniqueness. And so, you know, these embody experiences of healing, I think. Healing is, is, is what we name, but there's a lot of work that goes into creating a safe space for someone to be able to tap back into that healing mind, body, and spirit. So I think for me, it's understanding the theory and and what assist and Judith Horman's book, Trauma and Recovery, really helped me in understanding that. The church has helped me in understanding that. Mm-hmm. But then also um, being able to practically have safe spaces to put these things into into practice for the ladies and being able to have spaces where people can afford these services. You know, as I said, for me, you know, for, for me, I was able to access so many different resources because of my position and working for the U.S. government after my assault. But most people don't have those opportunities. And so, you know, I, I think the church can be a safe space to to provide certain resources and opportunities and trainings and holistic services for free for, for women. When we first started Argos House or just trauma and recovery in general, when we first started Argos House, I mean, we, we started with that. Um, I think I, I don't know if I said the United Methodist Church actually gave us our first $10,000 with a grant from the General Board of Church and Society to buy our first barrel of coconut oil. But that $10,000 also helped us to provide small stipends for service providers in the community to come and do yoga classes and art therapy classes and other things. And so, you know, it doesn't take much to start something like this. People, if you tell them what you're doing and your vision, you know, people will come to your church and offer free workshops for people in your community that need these Mm. safe healing spaces, Mm. right? And so, you know, I encourage you, if you see a need, if if people in your congregation are asking you to, or if you see certain issues connected to trauma and recovery, 
right? I encourage you to to link with service providers, to become allies with with counselors, therapists, artists, and other things to provide these services for free in your church. That's great. We're going to move to some rapid fire questions, Kit. Okay. How do you feel about that? Are you ready? I feel good about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> great. These are nonviolent rapid fire connections. Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> what, yeah. Maybe we need a different, a different metaphor for that, right? <laughs> rapid fire. Well, I guess rapid fire. Fire can be a positive thing too, right? <laughs> maybe so. Yeah. 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 So the first, uh, the first question is, what do you wish you would have known when you were starting out? Yep. And I was thinking fire, Holy Spirit, you know, all of that good stuff. I think for me, what would I say to myself or what, what I knew first starting out? I would say it's okay to think outside of the box, mm. right? I think for me, when I first started in ministry, when I accepted my call to ministry, you know, I felt like, first of all, accepting your call as a young person, it, it seemed a little intense, you know, like, okay, this call. But you know what? Because women were limited in my family within our denomination because of our context, I thought that I had to complete something that they was weren't able to complete. Right? Mm. They weren't able to get a seminary education. They weren't able to move forward as an itinerant elder within my denomination. And so I thought that I had to, you know, take that path and follow their path and and finish things that they hadn't finished. But what I realized is that they 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 served with their whole heart and they did what they were called to do. And it was okay for me to step outside of the box and move forward in my calling and my own uniqueness. And Mm. so I would tell myself what I would, what I would say is that it's okay to think outside of the box ministry, social innovation, social enterprise. That is amazing. And it's possible. When I first started out, we're doing it. We're doing it guys. No, but but when I first started out, I didn't know that that was possible. I Mm. didn't know that it was okay to understand that I was, you know, called in my own uniqueness, Mm -hmm. even if, even though we may have had to create our own path and our own uniqueness, but it was ministries like Becca Stevens and Thistle Farms, ministries like, you know, the Forum for Theological Exploration that incur- has encouraged me every step of the way since I was a very young minister mm-hmm. that have said, okay, all right, you can do this and you can do it with boldness, with a tradition of boldness. And there are others that understand you and that encourage you. And even if you have to step away from from what may look like more formal ministry, right? It it still it still will be there and will help to ground you moving forward. Mm-hmm. So moving forward, you know, I did walk away from my itinerant elder journey. I gave back my license to preach when I was in seminary, um, and I started to teach nonviolence and became a hospital chaplain. And so for years, I taught nonviolence and other things. And what I chose, I cho- I wrote a children's book for my denomination and a curriculum about Bishop Richard Allen, um, which is deeply connected to John Wesley and, and the Wesleyan uh, journey. And so, you know, I uh, would just say it's okay to think outside of the box. Everybody's path doesn't look the same, but all of the work that we do is grounded in the love of God and Jesus Christ. And uh, that's what ultimately matters the most. And I think that when we step outside of the box, we're able to maybe serve 
people that maybe a different ministry may not be able to serve. But together, working together, mm-hmm. we all help to build up the kingdom of God. Um, and so now, you know, I partner with churches all around my community, all around the country. And yeah, it was okay for me to step outside of the box. I didn't know that then. <laughs> it was a very vulnerable time in my young ministry life, stepping outside of the box in that way. I was different from everyone, right? And people looked at me like, why did you give back your license to preach? Why did you, you know, leave your denomination? But it was worth it. And it was what God was calling me to do. And that's okay. That's great. Seems like you have a good uh, heritage of folks in your life that have, like in your grandmother that stepped outside the box, even at 70. So you, uh, you've got a good, good examples. What's, what's, um, what's the thing you wish leaders in the church knew? I wish that leaders in the church would always be open to understanding who we would unconsciously see as the other, (laughs) you know? So whatever I think is interesting because I think what kind of makes us anxious in ministry is what we actually should try and push ourselves to learn more about. Right. And so oftentimes we may, you know, push back about learning more about race, racial equality or racial Mm -hmm. inequity. Right. We may push back connected to uh, sexuality and, you know, our LGBTQI plus brothers and sisters. We may push back connected to sex trafficking and women. Right. And I think sometimes oftentimes, I mean, we just say those topics and sometimes like it does something with our skin. You know, it's kind of intense stuff. Right. And those are topics actually that people in our congregations if we know or don't know, are having to journey with every single day. And it's important for us as ministry leaders to work through our own personal feelings. One thing I had to do when I first started, you know, on my path, you know, I studied at the School for International Training. And one of the things we had to do almost every day was kind of face these things to really understand our own social location. And this is what I teach in my classes before we start anything connected to our classes at where I am, where I teach theology and women's studies at St. Ambrose, mm. we have to go through this diversity wheel where we work through, okay, who, who are we as connected to race, connected to class, connected to um, vocation, our income status, our military status, all these different things, sexuality. So understanding who you are, because that impacts how we interact with the people that we're serving. If we aren't aware that sometimes we we have a blind eye up as it relates to how we may unconsciously discriminate, how we may unconsciously treat marginalized populations in our inferior way. Right. And so we have to work through these things. We have to address it head on. We have to focus on and understand our own insecurities and our own stereotypes and other things so that we can better serve our communities with boldness. Right. Mm-hmm. So I challenge you to work through whatever whatever issue it is that makes you cringe and you're trying to unconsciously run away from to face it head on, get involved and then sign up for a training. I challenge you to maybe reach out to a possible local ally and have lunch with them so you can better understand and be in solidarity in your own community. Because I promise you, the members of your congregations are really um, sometimes wrestling with these issues and may, may not even be aware, right? And I, and I know just because my husband is a pastor, when we do that, 
the love and compassion connected to these issues comes out in our teaching unconsciously, comes out in our preaching, and it makes it a safer space for the people that we're serving. Hmm. The last question is, what what is at the essence of Wesleyanism at the, the heart or the core of it for you? Yeah, how would you define that or explore that? Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So I grew up African Methodist Episcopal, right? Yeah. And so, you know, John Wesley and Bishop Richard Allen are deeply connected, right? So John, Bishop Richard Allen, I wrote the children's book on Bishop Richard Allen for the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And so I'm grateful to make this connection. One of my pages Mm -hmm. in my beautifully illustrated, like a children's book, oh, it's so pretty, um, Mm -hmm. you know, has a picture of John Wesley and Bishop Allen standing, sitting right next to each other. But John Wesley had an anti-slavery stance, right? And so he... He was very committed to working for love, compassion, and justice for all. And for someone who grew up even in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, like I knew that it was John Wesley that extended that compassion for, you know, people like Bishop Allen. And now, dare I say myself and my family to be Mm -hmm. able to have certain opportunities, even within the church. And so, you know, for me, John Wesley is a beacon of hope. He is a a religious leader who had an anti-slavery stance, who believed in love, compassion, peace, and justice for all people, regardless of their race. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful for what he did um, for my denomination um, and also for my family personally. Beautiful. May we be witnesses of that love and grace and justice and hope every day, right? (laughs) So Kit, you have um, blessed us. I mean, just in beautiful ways Uh, in just the short time we've spent together, I've had tears and chills and we've laughed together. I mean, really you are such a beautiful soul and have blessed us. And so we would like to close our time with a blessing of you. And so listeners, you can't see us, but we're going to extend our hands in this Zoom call toward our friend, Dr. Kit. And, uh, and Kit, hear this blessing. Thank you. Today, mm-hmm. we give thanks to God for you, for the ways that you um, pay attention to the pain around you and really see it, even, even feel it deep in your bones for the ways that you see what is breaking God's heart and then you boldly lean into exactly that space with a tenacious kind of courage and a vision for what few others can see. And that is the beauty that emerges out of the messy places and what is possible when hurting people are surrounded with love and purpose and possibilities. So Kit, We give thanks to God for you and for your life this day and for your ministry. And we pray God's blessings on you and your family, that you and Dwight and Imani and Justice might experience powerful love that makes Mm. it possible for you to face each new challenge and relentless grace that reminds you, each one of you, that you are enough, that you are beautiful and courageous and whole. By the grace of God, may it be so. Hmm. Amen. Thank you. Thank (laughs) you. Thank you for being here. Thank Thank you you for blessing us.
Oh, thank you for listening and for caring about this type of work. You know, I, I really, we really appreciate it. So thank you, Lisa, Matt, Blair, and all the listeners. And yep. So thank you for affirming me, but I'm very proud of all of you all for being committed to this type of work. So God bless you. Well, you're amazing. Igniting Imagination is a production of the Leadership Ministry Team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation with excellent editing support from Truthwork Media. Check out our show notes and website for more information about all our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White, and from all of us at Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening.